Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, my name's Luke. Haven't been up here in a while, and one of the reasons for that... Oh, great. Let's just review what happened there. I said I haven't been up for a while. You cheered. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So good to see most of you. Um, <laughs> Very relieved to be home. Thank you. Um, so I was in Uganda for 105 days earlier this year, and we adopted two boys, Trey, who's now 21 months, and Jai, who will turn one next week, actually. I think we have pictures of them. Uh, there they are. Okay. Um, they, look, they look good now. Each of them was abandoned earlier in their life. Trey, when he was believed to be about six months old, he was found on the side of the road in a very busy part of downtown Kampala, very weak and malnourished. And Jai was found a little north of the city, out a ways um, in a trash bag with his umbilical cord still attached, so believed he was just a day or two old. So not biological brothers, but each of them were taken to the same orphanage and through the work of lots of caring people were nursed back to health and eventually found their way into our family to become brothers. So, yeah. Thank you. So that makes seven of us now. One for every seat in the minivan. Uh, and it's gone quite well, actually, all things considered. That's kind of, you know, everybody's asking, how's it going? And I, I'm, real, I'm not just sort of sloughing off an answer when I say it's going well. It is. It's gone uh, good, as good as we could be expecting it to go. And thank you for the ways that you have blessed our family um, in the past and even now and, and going forward. This is something we couldn't have couldn't do by ourselves, and we haven't done it by ourselves. Uh, very blessed by all of your support and praying for us. It really means a lot, so thank you for all of that. You know, we went through that, this process, uh, obviously, in order to simplify life. Uh, no, no. Um, five kids, eight and under. Real simple, real simple. I don't know if I'm any better at living simply than Nate or Ben have said that they were. You probably aren't either, right? And that's why we're doing this series. Simplify. Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds very refreshing. I think there's something quite attractive about the thought of being less cluttered and more focused, less busy and more at peace, less distracted and more deeply connected to God and to those people around us who mean the most to us. That's where this series is aiming us. Drawing from a book called Simplify, written by Bill Hybels. Maybe you've picked it up. A lot of us are in group studies as well, talking about it each week, going through the material. And that's led us this week to this simplifying challenge, Spend Wisely. Good, we're talking about money. I'm sure you're delighted. Everyone loves when, the, when church talks about money. Well, if you've got some preconceptions, maybe just put them on hold for a little bit. And we'll see if we can get somewhere helpful today. Because I think acting wisely is good, right? Exercising wisdom with regard to our finances in particular is something worth pursuing, I think. So let's see if we can find some wisdom. A little Bible quiz to start off with. If you were going to the Bible looking for wisdom, what part of the Bible is known for its wisdom, full of wise sayings and practical advice? Proverbs, right? 31 of them in all. Maybe you've read some of them. Collection of these wise, uh, short, pithy sayings. That's kind of what a Proverbs is. And the book opens by saying, these are the Proverbs of who? 
Solomon, King Solomon, that is, King of Israel, mid-900s B.C. Seems that he wrote most of Proverbs. Uh, Very popular guy. World-renowned in his wealth and wisdom, in fact. Prolific in writing, 3,000 Proverbs, over 1,000 songs credited to him, according to the Bible. A man of tremendous influence. Uh, People throughout the centuries have gone in search of his wisdom in the book of Proverbs, looking for advice on things like finances and parenting and relationships and health and vices and virtues. It's all there. And we're looking for wisdom today. And if we went to Proverbs, it would say things to us like, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Why would you want wisdom? Well, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom will be delivered. And don't we need to be delivered from financial stress and complexity and pain? Don't we need some wisdom in this area? Solomon is always distinguishing between what is wise and what is foolish. And how many of us have fallen on the wrong side of that distinction when it comes to the way that we've handled money? We think about the complexity of life, how much of that has to do with the state of our finances? How much of it has to do with just financial foolishness, if we're honest? Mismanagement, call it what you want. How much of the complexity of life is the result of our materialism? The more money we get, the more stuff we buy. And that stuff is literally cluttering our lives and our houses and our driveways. And you're fooling yourself if you do not also think it's cluttering your soul. So many of us have thought that more money would make us freer, but instead it has imprisoned us, strapped us with debt, robbed us of peace, locked us into this unwinnable game of keeping up with the Joneses. Whoever they are, we don't know, but they got more money than us. We need to be delivered from this madness. We need some wisdom here. And that's why we need to listen to Jesus. Not Solomon. Well, no, you, you read all the Proverbs you want. Solomon's good. Read them and apply them. But I think what we need most is a word from Jesus. And here's why. A thousand years after Solomon, Jesus came on the scene. That's what you read about when you get to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have all of these snapshots of Jesus' life. And I was captured by one in particular when Jesus is teaching the ever-increasing crowds in Luke chapter 11. And at one point, he calls to mind the, the wisdom and the splendor of Solomon. And he remembers this time when a foreign queen heard about Solomon's fame and she came to visit him. And then he makes this bold claim. She, this is the queen of Sheba, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. But now something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. His name is Jesus and wisdom is found in him. Sure, there's, there is the way of fools and that seems right sometimes, but the wise listen to advice. And Jesus has much advice to give on how to spend wisely. You could, of course, trust in yourself to figure it out, but those who walk in wisdom will be delivered. So if you want to be delivered from financial uh, complexity and stress, it might be wise to listen to Jesus today. To help with that, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and take it out. uh, or Bring it up on your phone, Luke. The very next chapter, actually, Luke chapter 12. New Testament book, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 12. Verse 1 sets the scene there. It said, a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so much so they were trampling on each other. And then Jesus began to speak. I think we actually have a picture of Jesus when he started talking to all those people who were clamoring to see him. Yeah. 
He's kind of a big deal, all right? Uh, he, didn't, he didn't say it right there. He didn't, he's not self-absorbed like Ron Burgundy. But everyone knew he was a big deal because he taught with authority. That spoke for itself. And a really interesting thing happens when he's teaching there in Luke chapter 12. There's a guy who recognizes, yeah, Jesus is a big deal, and he's got some clout. And so he presses himself up to the front of the crowd where Jesus can hear him, and he calls out, he says, hey, Jesus, teacher, would you, would you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? See, things aren't shaken out quite fairly, at least in his eyes, when it comes to how the family wealth is being divided up. So Jesus, I was wondering if you could help me with this. Could you maybe wield some of your authority, throw your weight around a little bit with my brother so he'll give me what he owes me? Wouldn't be the last person to try to use Jesus in order to get money. Unfortunately, I think it might be a little too common for us to sort of approach God to kind of get money. Maybe we could use him to get money, like he's a talisman or a good luck charm that could be used to help us advance our financial status. Like We should probably follow some of his rules and behave nicely and maybe give a little bit to charity, and then maybe he'll throw his weight around a little bit and tip the universe to work out in our favor financially. Because, you know, I deserve that, after all. I'm owed that somehow. And this guy was owed something. At least he was convinced of that. Jesus, somebody owes me something. Will you do something so that I can get what's coming to me? And it's easy to see that attitude reflected in someone else. That sort of, I'm put out and got a chip on my shoulder because I'm not getting what's mine approach to life. You can see that in other people. A little harder to recognize in yourself. I told you I spent 105 days in Uganda, and it was no picnic. Without question, the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, stretched us in every way. Everybody sort of has limits in all facets of life, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. We all have an idea of like where the line is, the point at which we, we just couldn't be pushed any further. Well, for me, in all of those ways, wherever that line was, it is now well beyond that point. Uh, which now I'm grateful for. And and there's even a certain uh, gratification in knowing that in spite of all of the waiting and the unknowns and the discomfort and the illness and the unfairness and the loneliness and the cost and the sheer ridiculousness of it, we made it. (laughs) We made it. But before we made it, uh, when we were in the midst of it, it wasn't pretty. And looking back, If I had to describe my attitude for most of those 15 weeks, from this perspective, I can see that most of that time I was feeling like I was owed something. Somebody owes me something. Because it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't take this long. It shouldn't demand this much. Systems shouldn't be this inefficient. I deserve an explanation for why things are the way that they are. I am uncomfortable. And after everything I have done to make sure this thing works out, I should not still be this uncomfortable. Jesus, don't you see what's going on here? you got to do something about this. Somebody needs to do something about this. At the least, I've got that coming to me. You ever seen those Snickers commercials? Uh, You're not you when you're hungry. (laughs) <laughs> they show like a whiny, whiny lady mouthing off and complaining until they give her a candy bar and then she eats and she turns back into the, the level-headed guy. Uh, you're not you when you're hungry. Grab a Snickers. You're not you when you feel like you're owed something. 
You're not you when you're not content. And I wasn't me when I was being pressed and stretched. God has been faithful to us that whole time, bringing us through that process and in time all the way through. And I was in the middle, I just didn't want to hear that. I wasn't hearing that. I was just angry about it all. It's like Danny Trejo before he ate the Snickers in the commercial and turned back into Marsha Brady. Uh, Marsha, you're a little hostile when you're hungry. Grab a Snickers. And I've noticed that I don't have to get pushed to those extremes in order to feel that way. Maybe you don't either. I, it can be about all different. I feel uh, put out when my kids aren't acting the way that they should. They owe me, after all, all that I've done for them. They should be behaving better. Or when my wife doesn't somehow read my mind and know that I expected her to do this and she didn't do it and now she owes me because she's causing my discontentment in our relationship. You guys are able to pick up on sarcasm, right? <laughs> 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 And it's the same way. You can bring that same kind of attitude into the financial realm. When I, I feel that same way toward God when I look at how much stuff I got. The level of provision that I've been afforded. My income stream. The lucky breaks that I've gotten. The return that I've gotten on my investment. I'm not getting enough of all that. It's not what I want it to be. It's not as much as somebody else's. And so contentment eludes me until I get what I believe I should have coming to me. Now, I may never talk in that way. I would never use those terms or say that out loud. I'd never say God owes me something. But if I really pressed into it, that's how I feel. I mean, I could owe a bunch of people a bunch of money and still go through life feeling like the world owes me something. You know what I mean? No, we're all very happy with how much money we make. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever do feel that way, and you bring that attitude to Jesus, he might say something to you like what he said in Luke chapter 12. He tells this opportunity seeker, I'm not going to take sides in this dispute over your family's estate. And then he turns to his disciples because he sees something in this guy. And he wants to make it a teachable moment. He, he, he said to his disciples, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Beware. You ever see one of those signs up? Beware. High voltage wires. Don't touch them or it'll be the last thing you touch. Beware. There is a dog behind this fence that will chew your leg off. Jesus is that kind of serious when he says, guard yourself against all kinds of greed, against uh, clamoring for more than God's provision for you, hoarding things to yourself. Greed wants to have you, but don't let it fool you into thinking that life is all about accumulating more stuff. Be wise. It's not. And then he tells him a story as he was often apt to do. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man came back with an abundant harvest. But the man said to himself, well, what am I going to do? I have no room to store all of my crops. Oh, the perplexity of it all. I'm so rich, I don't have room for all my stuff. My wallet's too small for my 50s, and my diamond shoes are too tight. Oh, how hard life is. But you don't have to have diamond shoes in order to be burdened by the complexity that comes with having too much stuff, right? How are we going to solve that? Well, here's what this guy did. He said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and that's where I'll store my surplus grain. Interesting, whose grain? 
how quickly he calls it his when he didn't make the ground or the seed or the sun or the rain that caused it to grow and produce the harvest that he obviously didn't even anticipate. But now that it's mine, I better build bigger barns. And I'll say to myself, now you've got plenty. Plenty of grain stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Life will be so good then. Oh yeah, because then, yeah, I'll definitely have enough then. Josh. Surely then I'll be content. And that sounds like wisdom to many of us. But why? If you read the chapters in the book, uh, Simplify, you saw the stats about uh, wealth as it relates to happiness. And the results turned out that people in the U.S., the richest country that has ever existed on the face of the earth, ranked 33rd in happiness. It was the poor Latin American countries that were all clustered near the top of the happiness scale. And there are plenty more stats you could cite, articles you could read. They all come out. A new study reveals Americans aren't happy despite all the stuff they have. Like it's this groundbreaking research that's being done. We don't need, all those, st- we don't need those stats to tell us. Because when we turn our eyes away from the movie screens and the magazine covers that prop up the lie that more money makes more happy and we take a look at our own souls, we know when there's discontentment, fear, and worry, and a tight grip on what we have, and bitterness about what we don't have, we know all this stuff ain't doing what we thought it would do. This guy in the story is not yet convinced, and he's in for a rude awakening, because just as he settles on his barn building plan, God appears to him and says, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who's going to get all the stuff that you've prepared for yourself? All your wealth has been managed in a way that's oriented around you. So when you come to an end, what's the point? Be wise here. This is what you have to reckon with, Jesus says. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Here's where this sermon is going. Okay? When we get to the end of this thing, I'm just going to tell you the end right now, here in the middle. Okay? Because there's not a lot of good news yet. That's a pretty sad story. Uh, kind of depressing. And it's tough to listen to because we can see ourselves in it. It doesn't matter what income level you fit into or whether you label yourself as rich or not. You probably don't, most of us. Okay? This man was labeled as rich. And Regardless of where we're at, we've followed the same thought progressions as this rich man in the story. And it's the kind of thinking that is normal to us and to the people that were listening to Jesus in Luke chapter 12. In fact, that uh, get all you can and do well for yourself approach to life, that's sold to us as the standard wisdom of the day. And so when Jesus looks at that and calls it foolish, it stings. And it can make us feel guilty. And oftentimes we take that guilt and try to make that the motivator for putting into practice the kinds of things I'm going to end this sermon with. Because I'm not going to say anything new. I don't have anything new to say with regard to how God coaches us to manage money. When we get to the end, I'm going to tell you, try the tithe, if you're not doing it already. The tithe in the story of God's people recorded in the Bible was an outward expression of an inner commitment. For all of those people who said, our God is the Lord and we serve Him only, we trust Him, we love Him, we worship Him, one critical, tangible way that they expressed that devotion was to take the first 10% of whatever their income was and release it into God's hands. 
they lived on the 90%. It was a faith step, required trust. But it was something that in a famous part of the book of Malachi, God even says, try me, test me in this. Offer the whole tithe and watch as I pour out blessings from heaven and supply your needs. It's not a problem for me. You trust me. You, you can thrive on 90%. Okay? Surprise, I'm going to tell you try that. At the end, I'm going to tell you, live below your potential lifestyle for the good of others. Okay? Now, tithing is actually one way to do that. But going even a little further here, like the tithe, this applies to all of us, regardless of your income level. Your income, however big or small it is, affords you a certain kind of lifestyle. What I'm going to tell you is to shoot lower. We don't all have to live at the same level, but don't grasp for the absolute highest level that you can achieve. Do not realize your potential, at least when it comes to accumulating for yourself. And particularly pushing this on those who maybe are already tithing, already being faithful with that. You might be at your limit at 10%. But just so you don't kind of, you know, check a box and, oh, I tithe and now I'm done thinking about it, um, it may also be true that 10% is a basement for you and that there is more that you could put into play for God's purposes if you were willing to sacrifice the lifestyle that you could afford. Surprise, when we get to the end, I'm going to tell you, save money. Uh, Bill Heibel talks about this as paying yourself. Save for when the storms come because they're going to come, so be wise. Heibel says 10%, which is not bad advice. So he would actually say live on 80. Tithe 10, save 10, live on 80. Now, to me, those are uh, priority decisions, commitments that if you make them, they're going to dictate how the rest of your financial situation plays out and how you respond to the other kinds of things that you won't be surprised to hear me say. Freeze unnecessary spending. Stop buying stuff you don't need. Uh, Decrease your debt. Pay off what you owe. And don't increase your debt load. And really, what are we talking about here? We're talking about living within your limits. And then I'm going to say, devote your work life to God. Make Him Lord in that arena. Now, this doesn't mean you have to underachieve or settle for less, a bad job or a low-paying job. No, you pursue your passion. Go after it. You, you might do an unfun job that pays the bills, and you pursue your passions in other ways. You supplement that. Maybe you be creative, and you try to turn that into a money-making engine. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but take chances. Succeed. Make a ton of money. Get promoted. Do whatever you do for work while maintaining the other priorities that we're talking about. That's where we're going. Those are the kind of things that I'm going to say at the end. And none of it's... New, none of it's stuff that I made up. And none of it is worth doing because you feel guilty. Don't let some preacher shame you into giving to the church. Don't let some preacher shame you into buying the Dodge instead of the Mercedes. But do, before you go out and do any of that, listen to Jesus to discover the good news that is available to those who heed his wisdom. Jesus didn't tell the story about the rich fool in order to make us sad and and guilty. He told it ultimately to set us free, to deliver us from the bonds that material wealth can so easily place on us. There is something so much better for you, which is why he says next, don't worry. 
don't worry. I know this kind of stuff might scare you to talk about, but don't worry about your life. What you're going to eat or about your body, what you're going to wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. We have lots of worries about our finances. We think it's going to run out. We won't have enough. We'll miss out on the best of life. We won't give the right opportunities to our kids. We have lots of worries. But Jesus, let me free you from that. And he says, get this, look at the ravens. And I don't know, with this group, I'm not sure that works. Don't worry, look at the ravens. I'm not sure you're buying that. But that's what he says. The ravens don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or barn. In fact, they're pretty lackluster. But God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Worrying doesn't extend your life. Look at the wildflowers. See how they grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like one of these. If that's how God cares for the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he also clothe you? You of little faith. And don't set your heart on what you're going to eat or drink. The rest of the world runs and worries about all of those things. And your Father knows that you need it. But seek first His kingdom. And all of those other things will be given to you as well. And then he says again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, little flock. For your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Regardless of what happens with your family estate, your heavenly Father is pleased to enrich you with the goodness of the kingdom. So you can be open-handed with your material stuff. You can do things like sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide money bags for yourself that, that won't wear out. A treasure in heaven, it won't fail. No thief can steal it, no moth can destroy it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is why I actually love preaching about money. Because what you do with money is so bound up and intertwined with the commitment of your heart. You can say whatever you want about giving your heart to Jesus, but your bank statements reveal where your heart actually is. They tell the story of where your allegiance lies, of what you're doing with the best of what God gave you. And so... When a person is convinced of the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they are assured of their value in the eyes of their Heavenly Father, and they're inspired by His promises to not only supply their needs, but also bless them in a way that cannot be counted, when all of that leads a person to say, I'm going to tithe, well, then we know that they are growing by leaps and bounds in their relationship with Christ. Where they put their treasure, their heart will truly reside. Faith is growing. It's being made stronger in a way that few other practices can produce. When a couple downsizes, when a person buys less car that they can, than they can afford, when a student gives away their birthday money, all, all so that they can be more generous to God's purposes in the world, those financial decisions have so much to do with their spiritual life, which can't be compartmentalized off from their financial life or any other part of life. The more of their treasure they release, the more their trust in God is increased. And the same is true of their joy. 
When people grow in generosity, they grow in freedom. Their fears are put in perspective. They walk a path that's leading away from the dangers of materialism and greed and toward true joy. And the farther they go down that path, the the more stories they have to tell of God's provision, God coming through, of work being done in God's name. It's this journey of discovering that God is who He says He is. He keeps His promises to bless those who are open-handed with their stuff and who bless others. Now the blessings that come back, they may or may not be financial, but regardless, they enrich your life. And this journey, this enrichment begins when we are rich toward God. That's the only way to get on this path. That's the only way to have those stories to tell. That's why we got to talk about money. A person releases their treasure to God. And all of a sudden they find their heart all bound up with God's purposes and God's will for the world and it changes lives. Not least of which their own. They become who they were created to be. We weren't made to live clutching on to our stuff. But just as God has freely given to us, He calls us to do likewise, promising that if we join Him in that, guess what? He'll keep supplying more and we won't lack what we need. He cares for the birds. He'll care for us. And neither will we lack contentment or gratitude. Are those things missing in your life? Perhaps it's because you're not yet convinced that it's all God's stuff anyway. Psalm 24.1 makes the bold declaration, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All we have comes from God. Maybe you have not heeded Jesus' warning to watch out for greed and it has duped you into believing that you, you don't have enough. You ought to have more. You're owed that, after all. Hard as you work, as lucky as other people around you seem to be, when's your lucky break coming? You scrape for everything you have, never having enough. God, your heavenly Father, is pleased to give you the kingdom. You're not you when you're ungrateful. You're not you when you're not content. And that's why we can't afford not to talk about money. The church would be robbing people not to share that wisdom with anybody who would listen. The impetus for giving to the church is not some, uh, some guilt-inducing plea to fatten the church's coffers. No, the encouragement for all of us to trust God in this very practical and very profound thing is about inviting us into the blessing of God. Giving enriches us. I know it sounds like foolish logic, but Jesus says, no, no, no. That's the wisdom that will set you free. Leads to joy and contentment and gratitude. If you want a simple life, then stop chasing after so many things. Simplify your devotion. If you want Jesus to live in your heart, then trust Him with your wallet. Align those things. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's how you simplify. And when you seek first the kingdom, enjoying all the blessings that come with that, 
you tithe. Take the first 10% of your income and you release it to God's kingdom purposes through the church. I know so many people, so many of us sitting right here who have a story to tell about this, and it might go something like this. You know, I was really hesitant to do that. I just didn't know how all the numbers would work out if I really did that. But then you tried it, and you still don't know how all the numbers are going to work out, but they do. And you're part of something bigger than yourself, and you see God's work being done in the world, and you have a story to tell about God's faithfulness, and now you will never not tithe. For the rest of us, when, at what point do you listen to the God who says, try me, test me in this, and see if I will not bless you? When you seek first the kingdom, you choose to live below your potential lifestyle for the good of others. Just like Jesus. The Bible talks about Jesus who was rich, but for our sakes became poor. In the same way, God calls us to voluntarily be poorer than we could otherwise be in order to share with others. Jesus says very practically, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about doing something like selling your stuff and giving to the poor. That is exactly the kind of thing that is the heart, at the heart of God's kingdom. When you seek first the kingdom, you, you save too. Like a wise manager, you save in a way that reflects good stewardship and trust. You cut out unnecessary spending. You take a hard look at, at your bank statements and at the stuff that's cluttering your house. You've you got to make time to do that. And you simplify. You declutter. You get serious about getting out of debt. You take the next Financial Peace University course when it's offered here. And the contentment taking root in you means you don't go deeper into debt. And when you seek first the kingdom, you make God Lord of your work. You thank him for the gifts that he's given you, the abilities that you have to work, and you use those to the best of your ability, being then grateful for and faithful with whatever provision comes to you as a result of those efforts. That's how you spend wisely what God has given you. There may be another way that seems right. But the wise listen to Jesus. And those who walk in his wisdom will be delivered. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your wisdom, that you share it with us and do not keep it hidden. Uh, give us uh, ears to hear what you're trying to say to us today in the midst of a, a topic that is probably hard to talk about for all of us, um, something that strikes us at the core of our being. And I guess that's the way it ought to be. You said where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Help us to put our treasure and our heart um, invested in the right things, things that are in line with your kingdom. So whatever we need to sort out with you, uh, give us the ability to do that, the practical things like time and conversations that we need to have with our family, our spouses, adjustments that we might need to make, all of those practical decisions that flow out of our commitment to you. And then we want to live in your blessing. Don't let any of us do this because we feel guilty, uh, but rather let us turn to you and deepen our relationship with you. We know that there's a cost to that, and we're praying for the courage to not just count the cost, but to say yes to you uh, 